Hey everybody, Sam Ellinger here with the Kansas City Star in another episode of Mellinger Minutes for your ears. Appreciate everybody giving us a chance. I hope we're worth your time. The support so far has been great and I really do. I can't emphasize enough how much I appreciate that. You guys, like, I just can't stop thinking about baseball. I know this is what we talked about at the top last week, but there are new twists in this all the time. And, you know, last week, at least what was on my mind was, you know, about owners and players making this huge mistake if they let this return to play thing just fight out in public because there's no way that either side wins that. You know, fans aren't going to sympathize with, you know, the owners. Some of those numbers are hard to believe. They're certainly not going to empathize with the players for wanting, you know, even more money. You know, it's it's just everybody's going to lose in that situation. It's just a mud fight that everybody's going to come out looking pretty ugly. But in the last week, I feel like there's an even bigger problem emerging. And I haven't heard as much talked about this, at least at least publicly, you know, but it seems to me that both sides, owners and players, uh, they're kind of stumbling around on the edges, you know, like everybody is sort of afraid to make a mistake. And, you know, they want owners, players, doctors involved, everybody, they want to cover every possibility, every potential risk. And that's all very well intentioned. Um, I want to emphasize that it's very well intentioned. But it's going to eventually, if, if it keeps going like this, it's going to eventually be seen as counterproductive if it means, you know, sort of redundant or unnecessary protocols, further delays. You know, that's only going to create even bigger problems. Look, like baseball is slipping from the public conscience. And, you know, right now it's in the news for all the wrong reasons. You know, in the beginning, it was this nostalgia about, oh, my gosh, like I miss going to the ballpark. And, you know, I miss seeing stars like Mike Trout and, 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 and all this stuff. But now it's just turned into this like ugly sort of, you know, court battlefield where, uh, you know, sort of the, the greater good or, or the common cause, I guess, is, is sort of being forgotten. And, you know, it just seems like baseball is terrified of screwing this up. And uh, I'm a huge believer, by the way, you know, the fear of failure can be really productive uh, if it's used in the right ways. But I'm starting to agree with the people in the game that I talk to who believe that the commissioner's office and players are both too worried about things they can't control. And, you know, some of this is more philosophical than mechanical, but it has feet in both worlds. Like there's a sense among some leaders in that sport that if they don't get this right, that if they begin a season and then have to stop, that they'll be blamed and and set the fight against this pandemic back. There'll be a big black eye and embarrassment for baseball. And look, like there's no doubt that it would be a huge bummer, a slash to sort of, you know, the national morale. But I also think that baseball is underestimating the public's capacity for, you know, positivity and reason and understanding if this is done the right way. Like, you know, I, I think people just want to see the sport try, stop bickering and try. I think people want to see the sport work together for that greater good that I mentioned earlier. I think they want the sport to not pretend like it can control the virus, but instead, and, and how often do we hear athletes say this, you know, control what they can control and do the best they can. And, you know, the, these negotiations, they're, 
every negotiation is, is all about posturing, you know, and sometimes the line is blurry between creating leverage and voicing real concerns. But for once, like just one time, it would be nice to see the sport prioritize that collective good over these immediate selfish needs. And look, I, I believe that the owners cannot be trusted on the numbers that are leaking out. And I believe the players deserve what they're asking because they're the ones we tune in to watch and they're the ones taking on added risk. But even if you're on the other side, if you believe that those guys should just shut up and play, look, I, I hope that we can agree that the fighting is bad for everyone and that there's a risk in almost literally anything that any of us do outside our houses these days. And, you know, baseball needs to do everything it can to mitigate that risk. Yes, sure. Like, absolutely. I, that, that point cannot be emphasized enough. But at some point, it also needs to find the stomach to accept some risk and move forward. You know, the, the cost in doing anything else, and I just don't mean like TV revenue or short-term interest, but in this sort of 30,000-foot, you know, health of the sport type stuff, it, it's just way too much at stake. And, you know, this is a strange place to be in because, you know, baseball by its nature is a game of failure. The people drawn to that sport, you know, you have to find ways to manage that failure and move through. And this is the biggest test that any of them will ever face in the game. And we will remember forever how they handle it. I, I really don't. It's not an exaggeration to say that a chunk of the sport's future depends on them doing the right thing. That's it for the top. We got another round of good questions this week, so we'll get to it. But if you'd like to participate in next week's show, call 816-234-4365. One more time, 816 234 Four three six five. Leave your first name, where you're calling from, and almost literally any question. My name is Jim Hence, H-E-N-S-E, uh, former Kansas City native, now Los Angeles resident. Uh, my question is: uh, We all know about Houston, the number one. Uh, game the Chiefs will be playing this year. The number two game will be played in Los Angeles at the new technologically advanced SoFi Stadium full of hype, uh, but without very many Chargers fans, which LA doesn't really know who the Chargers are. So the question is, how badly do the Kansas City Chiefs beat the Chargers in the first game of their vaunted home stadium? Thank you. It's funny, right? Like every off season, it seems like the Chargers are picked to sort of be the sexy, you know, trendy team in the AFC West and, and sometimes generally in the AFC. I saw another one the other day, um, you know, I think from the Washington Post. And and look, like I believe in the Chargers um, probably more than some people do. Um, I really like the talent they have on that defense. Um, Darwin James is such a stud, um, you know, and it seems like they had a good draft for whatever that's worth. Um, I like Tyrod Taylor. I've always liked Tyrod Taylor more than most. And if they're right about Herbert, you know, they, they, they might have something building for the future. Um, all that said, I think they're a pretty substantial ways behind the Chiefs. And, uh, you know, the, uh, you mentioned that game at SoFi. Like, I mean, the, the joke, right, is that, um, this is probably good for the Chargers. You know, uh, their home games were probably all, and especially with the Chiefs. In normal times, those are going to be, you know, 60-40 rooting against the Chargers, you know, rooting for the home team. Um, so maybe maybe having no fans in the stadium will be good for the Chargers uh, instead of bad. But, yeah, it's 
It's funny, man. Like I, you go through and we all do it. And I went through the chief schedule the first time I looked at it and I thought 14 and two, <laughs> I really did. And may, maybe that's ridiculous. It probably is. Um, you know, that's way over the Vegas number anyway, but you guys, I just, assuming that this season gets played, um, you know, a, a full season, it's just hard to imagine the chiefs not coming into this thing with an enormous advantage. You know, you, you can close your eyes and imagine the Ravens, you know, being a significant obstacle. And that's a real thing the Chiefs will have to get past, including the fact that those guys are going to be pissed. You know, uh, they feel like they left something on the table last year. And, you know, those guys are going to have the same motivation that the Chiefs have had the last few years. And that's something to deal with. But, uh, you know, my goodness, it's it's hard not to look at this thing and not, not believe the Chiefs are a heavy favorite again. Hey, Sam, this is Anthony from Springfield, Missouri. Saw your tweet about questions. I've got several for you, actually. Uh, what was Ned Yost's real agreement and understanding when he came on as a special consultant to Dave Moore? Was there, I think you know what I mean by that. Um, yeah. And uh, let's see, what are the young hotshot uh, starting pitchers that are the minors for the Royals? What are they doing now during COVID-19? Uh, how is Coach Eli Drinkwitz recruiting so well? He's really off to a great start, especially in St. Louis. What's his secret? Um and finally, uh, you know, what does the impact of COVID-19 do in the Royals' chances, let's say, in 2021 in terms of the development of the young people? Does this just kind of set everything back, or, you know, can those young people still, uh, in players still make progress and come along just as fast as we were hoping they could? Thanks. Bye. Yeah, um, I do know what you're talking about with Ned. And, um, you know, there's two different ways to look at this, right? There's, uh, you know, technically and practically. And, you know, technically... I have heard people who I've never known to lie to me um, swear up and down that when Ned came on, that it was not a you'll be the next manager and we're going to fire him soon kind of deal that that was not mentioned. Um, I tend to believe that just because of how strong, how strongly they're saying that. And again, that these are people that I've never known to lie to me. Um, But I think like practically you know, Ned's not a dummy. Um, he can see what's going on. And, and I think that he was attracted to the organization because of that young talent that he had. And, and that's his, that became his, you know, his biggest strength as a manager. It's what he did in Milwaukee is kind of help a young group along. And, and I think he knew that that was a possibility. Um, you know, it's a similar deal with Mike Matheny. You know, um, they brought him along into the organization before they had a managerial opening. And, you know, I think, you know, this is maybe into the weeds a little bit, but it's important, uh, you know, at least a window into how Dayton Moore thinks. I believe that if you go all the way back to when they hired Trey Hillman, um, the person that they wanted to hire, that Dayton wanted to hire was Joe Girardi. And I think they felt like they had a good relationship there. And then the Yankees comes up and, you know, that's been his passion, you know, like that's sort of his dream job. Um, and so he went there. And I think that there is a thinking of, you know, you know, let's let's realize where we are in the world. Like people don't grow up dreaming to be the Royals manager they way, the way that they would, you know, the, the Yankees, the Red Sox, the Dodgers, the Cubs, whoever. Um, so we have to sell ourselves in a little bit different way. And so let's bring these people into the organization so they can see what we're about. And then if and when we have an opening, we have a better chance of of getting them and and of knowing if they're a fit and them knowing if if we're a fit and I think they look at it that way of just it, it's a way to make better hires. Um, you know, you're you're asking about the minor league because I think those those last two questions kind of go together. Um, you know, they're working out just like everybody else, and you know, as far as like the development, 
Um, you know, the Royals have always strongly believed that you develop by playing, you develop by trying to win. And obviously that's not happening right now. Um, so I think it does set things back. Um, I really do. Um, I, I think it, it, it does make it harder. You know, maybe it pushes the timeline back a little bit. But uh, I also think this, there's not, that's not an excuse and it can't be used as an excuse. And, you know, everybody's dealing with the same stuff. So, uh, you know, Brady Singer, for instance, is ostensibly competing, uh, you know, for future future games against other people who are 21, 22, whatever, um, in the game. And they're facing the same obstacles that he is. So um, it, it's kind of about who takes better advantage of this time. But yeah, I do think that, that it impacts development, um, you know, for sure. Uh, absolutely. So, okay, guys, uh, really good round of questions. I appreciate you guys, every, everybody who called in, even the ones that we couldn't use. I apologize for that. But we're going to take a quick break and we will be right back with a conversation with Dayton Moore. First of all, again, I know I've told you guys this, but thank you so much for doing this. This is this is going to be really cool for me. Um, just introduce everybody. Uh, Dayton Moore, general manager of the Royals. Gene Watson, uh, I believe your title is assistant general manager for pro scouting. Did I get that right? Assistant to the general manager. Assistant <laughs> to the general manager for pro scouting. And Daniel Mack, assistant to the general manager, research and development. So I think I'm assistant general manager. Oh, there we go. All right. All right. All right. <laughs> Um, so basically the, they're just what, Gene and DMAC to me. There we go. There we go. Okay. Um, but basically what this turned into was, well, it started with me and Ryan Lefebvre doing this silly little thing where we drafted Royals players. The, the only rule was the 21st century and you could have one season. Um, and, and we drafted this team and, and Dayton had the idea of, of running this through kind of like a mock exercise of, of how you guys evaluate potential acquisitions do i have this is that generally correct okay um so i i kind of want to stay out of the way i'll ask some questions here and there but i'm just fascinated to see you know kind of how this goes and and the way that you guys look at different players and and the way that you guys communicate these different points of view yeah no great sam i mean I think it's an, a very interesting exercise, and you know, I want to really thank you guys and, and really the, the members of the media because you guys have done an unbelievable job, really, during this shutdown, during this period of time. That continue, I mean, you, you've kind of uh, recaptured the history of our game and uh, history of you know sports in Kansas City, and so it's it's been really fun and. And, you know, we're looking for ways to stay stimulated. And, and I thought this was a very interesting uh, piece, truthfully. And uh, so uh, I just felt it was really important to kind of in, involve our people. And as you know, we've talked many times. I mean, any when we put together a team or we make a trade or we take uh, uh, acquire a player free agency or through the draft, I mean, there's a, there's a scouting judgment that takes place. There's a statistical judgment that takes place. There's a medical evaluation, there's a financial evaluation, and there's a character and leadership evaluation. And, and you know, we put all those uh, buckets together. And, and of course, uh, Gene Watson and, and Dr. Mack are huge uh, with, with what we do. Uh, Gene uh, gets all of our scouts' opinion. Uh, DMAC has a, a great way of listening. 
and to their judgments and then looking at the hard data and the statistics and uh, and projecting on players that way. And and Gene, in turn, has great respect for, for Dr. Mack. Uh, I call him D-Mack, so I'll refer to him D-Mack is, is in this piece, but um, uh, has great respect, as do our scouts, for you know, what they have to do. And we've always felt that the numbers validate our judgments as scouts or perhaps lead us to a player that maybe our eyes have undervalued and, and, and force us to look a little deeper. And so this is just kind of a glimpse of how, how we do things. And uh, these two individuals on the call today are, are individuals that I go to right out of the gate when we start putting teams uh, together. And I've always felt that the important part of leadership is to find people and, 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 and other leaders that can go beyond you. And Gene Watson and DMAC are clearly those two of those people in our organization that we rely heavily on. So um, anyway. Well, so, so guys, oh, I'm sorry, but is, is this like the structure of how you do it? Um, obviously it wouldn't be a zoom call in, in, in normal life, but is it the three of you in a room and with papers in front of you and you just go through the players? Well, it's, it's, it's bigger than this. So D, Gene, if you want to address that from your point of view and DMAC, why don't you, you guys? Yeah, Sam, because we're out in the field, you know, we have a 12-man staff that's out in the field, as well as myself seeing players. Michael Sapuentes, our pro director, sees players as well. So it's really the day-to-day, you know, player availability. We're always talking players as we're into our coverage. And as players come available, we'll begin to reach out to the scouts. It could be six-year free agents. It could be Rule 5. It could be a trade situation, a waiver claim situation. We'll, we will reach out to the scouts and get their opinion of, it, of them. Uh, we'll call if – the, if the player is in uh, one of the minor leagues where we have an affiliate, we'll call the coaches and managers from those affiliates. We'll call our amateur scouts if they have a background with the player. And then from that point, once I have all the information, I'll, I'll call DMAC and say, hey, D, what do you have on this guy? What's your viewpoint on it? And, and we'll try to find all the tangible aspects of the player and really just put everything kind of into a melting pot to come up with the best possible decision that we can for each individual player as they become available or are brought to us. Yeah. Okay. Um, I think you all probably know that I can get obsessed with, with numbers and analytics and, and DMAC, I'm, I'm just curious, like what do you have like typically just kind of some headline data points that you look at that you start out with and then, and then go from there. What, what's important in, in your eyes? Well, yeah, so we've, you know, kind of the, the other side of that, um, myself and Guy Stevens, who's our senior director of research and development, um, you know, we'll go back and forth and we also will loop in uh, Michael Fuentes, our director of pro scouting, um, because he came from through the R and D process. Um, and we'll start looking at, you know, you know, fairly stable statistical performance indicators. Then we'll start to utilize more performance data, pitch by pitch data that we use to project and forecast, you know, performance, uh, not just for the rest of the year, but maybe going forward. If it's a long-term acquisition, um, things that we can use to glue, you know, other information about offensive performance, you know, contact rates, chase rates, hard hit rates, things like that, that we can then kind of say, okay, this is what kind of profile this player is and how does it match up with the type of profile we're looking for uh, from that position. Okay. How much of what you do, how much of the the numbers that you're analyzing are like publicly available? How much of it is proprietary? 
Uh, I would say it's three quarters of probably what we use is, is proprietary. It's things that we've developed internally, uh, both models as well as tools that we use internally. Um, and then probably that last quarter are, are things that we're going to, I think every one of us that obviously came from, from outside through the, you know, being a big fan of independent research, things like percentages, you know, that kind of thing, K percent, walk percent, isolated power, things like that, that really kind of drive, you know, sort of, uh, kind of that top level analysis. Okay. Okay, cool. Um, I'm, I'm realizing we haven't done this yet, but should we just run through the teams real quick? Yeah, let's do it. Um, okay. So, so Ryan, uh, so we, we did one, one player at each position, one starting pitcher, one relief pitcher. Uh, so Ryan's team, he had, he took James Shields from 2013. Uh, the 2014 version of Wade Davis is his relief pitcher. Uh, catcher Sal, <clears throat> excuse me, Sal from, uh, 2017. First base Mike Sweeney from 2000. I know Dayton, you're, you're going to make a position switch for, for Ryan there, but, uh, Mark Gredzelonic from 2007 at second. Angel Barroa, the rookie of the year uh, season in 2003 at short. Joe Randa, 2000 at third. The 2001 version of Johnny Damon in left. Lorenzo Kane of 2015. And Jermaine Diet of 2000 in right field. Billy Butler, 2009. That was his 50-some, 51 doubles, I think, here as his DH. Um, my team is uh, Zach Greinke's Cy Young year, uh, 2015 Wade Davis. 2013 Sal, um, 2000, or yeah, 2017 Eric Hosmer at first, Whit Merrifield, 2018, Mike Avilas, 2008 at short, Moose from 2015, uh, left to right around the outfield, Alex Gordon in that <laughs> the dominate year, uh, 2011, uh, Carlos Beltran, 2003 in center, Jeff Frank Core, maybe I'm pandering to Dayton here, but Jeff Frank Core uh, in right field, 2011, and uh, Jorge Soler from last season is my DH. So what, what stuck out to you guys when, when you're looking through this? Well, what was unique for me was was how similar their on-base percentages were. They were very uh, similar from an on-base standpoint uh, and run production. Uh, so you guys did a great job of drafting from that standpoint. And then once once you got past the offensive production that was that's kind of subjective, it, it came down to just measuring the intangibles of each year and – and that individual player for that year, it was really a fun exercise to go through. Okay. I think from my perspective, um, you know, Sam, for being honest, looks like you might have been a little fan graph war heavy um, in a lot of those picks. Uh, and DMAC, DMAC, DMAC knows I'm a war guy too, so he <laughs> <laughs> knows I like that one. Uh, and it looked like maybe Ryan was a little more uh, – uh, record holder heavy, you know, guys that may have had set, set a particular record in something like RBIs. Um, in a lot of cases, right, he ended up being like the second highest, uh, you know, pick in the, you know, if by Fangraph's work, we're going to use that, you know, kind of measure to, to give a sort of a, an overall look. Um, but I kind of kept noticing that same thing strike again and again and again on yours. So yeah. <laughs> I don't know if I solved it, but it seemed like it. Yeah. Yeah. No, hey, <laughs> DMAC, explain war a little bit real quick, if you don't mind. Yeah, so, you know, if you're looking at uh, trying to build a, a good descriptor for what is a above-average season where someone not only produced a lot of runs but also 
prevented a lot of runs being scored, right? Added by, and by doing that, by scoring more runs and preventing more runs, giving a true advantage to their club. Um, and it ends up sort of being distilled into wins. Uh, and it's looking at, uh, guys who added more wins than a player of replacement level quality. And that's kind of where war gets, I think, into some shakier ground because defining replacement level quality can be a little, a little tricky. But uh, that being said, it gives you a really good baseline, I think, to start and say this player added a lot of value to his team in that season. How much credibility do you put into those numbers? Baseball I think they're great for uh, – pretty descriptive purposes, right? To, to say who added, who, who really contributed to that team in that year and why did they contribute to the team that year? Uh, I think when it gets into forecasting, um, it, that's where it becomes a little trickier for me as well. And I'd probably prefer to, to kind of look at more finely grained numbers, uh, you know, in terms of forecasting. But I think that for an exercise like this, it's a great way to kind of say, okay, who, you know, where do these guys sort of stack up in Royals history since 2000? Okay. And, and Gene, you, you mentioned um, in, intangibles, like how, how did they help a team win and everything? Like what, what sticks out, some, some of these names and seasons, um, what, what, what stuck out to you? Well, that, that's a very big part of, of who we are as an organization is, is players that can come in and fit our culture. Um, the thing that sticks out to me the most is – you know, how surprising when you, when you line these lineups up and you match them up position by position, how surprising, you know, it was that some guys, you know, intangibly and numbers-wise seem to have better years. I think the big dynamic is, is definitely our ballpark uh, and, and the offensive production in our ballpark, coupled with uh, the defensive ability to play center field in our ballpark. Our ballpark is completely different than most, and so you really you can't give up a lot defensively. And so when you factor those things in, along with the impactful – numbers that a player was able to give um, that that's kind of the separator for us. Okay. Where, where do you guys, I'm curious, like DMAC and Gene, like what, is there a theme, you know, sometimes you're going to agree, right? Like sometimes you're going to see this guy's a really good player. This guy was not a fit or whatever, but is there a theme of like where you guys consistently disagree? Like, like where you guys see the game differently? I don't think DMAC and I have argued a player in, in our time together. I really don't. Um, you know, there, there's, there's some situations where our scouting staff may, you know, maybe a guy is not performing uh, to what we feel his potential is, be it uh, the team he's with, maybe it's the protection that he's had, maybe it's a player that's had a lot of injuries. Uh, even in today's era where players are being asked to do a lot of things technology-wise, analytically-wise, where we can get information on that player and say, hey, if we can get this guy back to being what he was, we have a chance to get him back to what his ceiling could have potentially been. So, right. you know, we're more of the investigative side of the player. You know, you know, maybe it's a player that was in a ballpark or a lineup that didn't have a lot of protection, and now we feel like if he comes over all ballpark with his offensive approach and hitters behind him, he's got a chance to perform more offensively. So – all of those intangibles are, are taking place. And I think the, 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 well, the one thing that DMAC always do always is see each other's viewpoints. And then at the end of the day, you just come up with the best possible decision for the organization that you can make. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. I, I think that, you know, we definitely will see players with some differences, but it's not, there's not like a consistent, you know, 
quote unquote blind spot or something where we can't get past a player because we're going to, you know, have an open discussion. We're going to lay out the, the, the facts. We're going to lay out what we see scouting wise. We're going to lay out what we see performance wise. And, you know, the only thing we want to both make sure we do is present enough of that information. So, you know, we can feel comfortable that Dane's going to make a decision with as much information as possible. Yeah. You know what, what you said just now, Gene, about, uh, the ballpark. Uh, I know there was a lot of projection involved when you guys made the trade and, and, and got Lorenzo Cain among many others, but I'm just curious, was, was that a big part of that for you guys of like, look at this outfield we have and this guy's got the legs and the athleticism to, to cover it. A huge part. And, and that's something we look at every day with our players. I mean, there's, there's playing center field and then there's playing center field at Kauffman stadium. It's not just being able to play it one or two days a week. It's being able to play it 140, 150, 160 games a season. So, you know, that's probably the most interesting thing that separates us from a lot of other organizations is we, we can't give away extra outs in center field. And so, that's really a unique dynamic to us evaluating center fielders. But, you know, Sam, the, the, the directive that, that we have pushed with our organization, our scouts, everybody that is a part of the evaluation process is we, we have to have, yes, a player that can cover center field in our ballpark, but we also want him to be offensive in nature, okay? So we always use Andrew Jones and Adam Jones kind of as the model, Uh and we need to get players like that, either through the draft or acquire them. And, and then, obviously, we have to have our fourth, fifth outfielder needs to be able to play center field as well. Um, Lorenzo is, is – <laughs> I mean, you guys nailed that one. I mean, just kind of a, a clone of those guys. Yeah. See, one thing I'll add to that also is, you know, the one thing that we always believe in is our coaches and our player development staff. And, and it can be a situation where – a player is is not performing to its highest level or reaching a ceiling. And, and, and I'll, I'll consistently say, and I know DMAC believes this as well, that, you know, we're, this is what he needs to work on. And we believe in our coaches. Our coaches believe in players and they love players and they love making players better. And so, you know, there's, there've been some situations where we've gotten players just believing in the ceiling of it and believing that our coaches are going to make those guys better as players. Yeah, those 14, yeah, 15 I, teams. I, I would are, agree with that. Yeah. And Rusty Koontz <laughs> okay, is a um, perfect example. I mean, Rusty, Koontz, Rusty Koontz helped Lorenzo Kane immensely. I mean, he, he was the determiner there. Uh, certainly he had tools. He had upside. He had somewhat a, uh, a level of success at the upper levels, broke into the major leagues, and and, and had some, you know, some two-month success, if I'm not mistaken, DMAC, and, and some pretty good predictors. We still wondered about his health when we traded for him. Uh, he had some injury history. Our medical team and, and uh, Rusty Koontz and the coaching staff did a great job, along with his teammates, and then helping him reach his ceiling. Yeah, I always think about Rusty, like the thing that you guys have always kind of built your teams around in a lot of ways is, is defense and, you know, sort of athleticism, base running. And that's rusty, right? Defense, outfield yeah. defense and, <clears throat> and base running. So, um, okay. Well, cool. Um, so what um, – um, can we just talk about how much better my team is than, than Ryan's? <laughs> you won on our end, so. Did I? <laughs> I, I felt bad for Ryan, but, yeah, uh, you were the winner on our end. <laughs> D-Man? 
Yeah, yeah, I, I think you came out on top. But there's an argument to be made that some of the players he picked, even if, if you take away individual seasons, may have been more consistent players for the, yeah. for the club. Okay. What, what were the closest positions in, in your guys' mind? What were the, you know, maybe someone was separation? Well, for me, when you talk about Zach Greinke versus James Shields, I mean, two workhorse starters, uh, you know, they, they're true bell cow starters, legit number ones, guys that you want starting games ones uh, of playoffs. But I think the separator in the two seasons that you selected were the complete games that Greinke had, the strikeouts. They were both very good, but I think Greinke was kind of the separator for us overall, you know, not only in those seasons, but you know, subjectively, when you look at what he's done since then uh, and the type of – I mean, he's, he's a borderline Hall of Famer right now, probably will get in the Hall of Fame. And so, to me, it was not just the individual seasons, but the subjectiveness of what the, he's done continuing on and, and just, just a slight separator as far as the complete games and the strikeouts and the athleticism for me. Yeah, and I think you, we we would see that from a very similar perspective. You know, I, Shields obviously threw a ton of innings, anchored that rotation, um, but but Grinke's 2009 is is a sterling year for would be a sterling year for any franchise, but definitely tops the the Royals. Okay. Um, I would say that I mean I, I would agree with with Gene, and I would agree with Dmac and and you as as far as just the the evaluation of the talent, but. You can't overlook what James Shields meant, his attitude, his swagger, his professionalism, the way he modeled his work ethic and, and uh, dealt with accountability. And so two, two really important pieces of, of a championship club. Yeah, I mean, kind of helped transform you guys yeah. in a lot of ways. Um, was there anybody, <clears throat> like, did, who did we miss? Was there anybody like – you know, when you're going through this, like, why the hell didn't they they miss this guy? I was a little bit surprised that neither of us had Escobar as our shortstop. But what, what did you guys see? That that was the one for me, is that yeah. Escobar didn't get get much play at the shortstop position. I mean, uh, just a spark plug, a catalyst. I mean, everybody knows what he did for us in the 15 World Series. And uh, so that was the one that kind of jumped out to me in our group. Okay. I would, I would agree with that as well, actually. For, for what it's worth. I mean, I think the defensive value of Escobar um, and, you know, that 14 season that he put up was pretty good for a shortstop with that kind of elite defense. Yeah. So 2014, that was his best year in your eyes? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. D-Mac, let me ask you a quick question. We talked about this before, but I think it's important. But, you know, when, when Ned kept inserting Esky at the top of the, the order – and, you know, we, we clearly looked at that from a, a statistical analysis that, you know, what there might be other players that fit that profile, that spot in the batting order. And Ned continued to, to go with that. And I think there was a psychology to the team as well. But talk about how we we worked through that a little bit. Right. So, you know, I think even since I started uh, since I started as an analyst here in 2013, you know, our department has always uh, provided a, you know recommendations that would be uh, given to both Dayton and Ned uh, with you know arguments for for why and why not and you know I think it was a it's a good conversation and it's a, it's a good lesson I think in an, in that situation where 
our job is to just make sure that we get that information as clearly presented as possible. And having, you know, the kind of relationships in this organization, getting feedback as to, yep, we understand that information, but we're going to do something that doesn't quite match what you, what you recommend. This is why. And, you know, we're going to roll with that. You know, we're, we're going to continue to probably present very similar arguments down the line. It's not going to cycle back into our own, you know, uh, process because we still want to make sure that we're giving as full of a, an account as possible. But uh, it's, you know, just trying to make sure that we have as many options on the table as possible to give the manager as many options as possible. That, that was a weird thing, like when it, when it was happening, right? Because, um, you know, Ned, when he's, he tried to take Esky out of the leadoff spot there for a little bit and then um, put him back in. And I mean, he said some, I'm paraphrasing, but it was something like, I don't know why it works. It shouldn't work. I understand that the numbers say it shouldn't work, but it's working. So we're going to go with it. What do you, I just, when, when you have a view that's very, you know, um, the numbers say this doesn't work and should not work. Like what, how did you process that? How did you, how did you process that part of it when, when it was happening? Well, I think that, like I said, it kind of comes back to being able to hear from, from the decision makers in that, in those positions, why they're making that decision mm-hmm. gives you at least some peace. And then at the end of the day, when the game starts, we want to win. So if, if Escobar is going to hit an inside the park home run, we're going to get pretty excited about it regardless of, of whether or not he should have hit that at, at the top of the lineup or at the bottom of the lineup. It doesn't matter because that gets a, that gets the team moving in the right direction. And those are the, once the game starts, all of those decisions are out of, they're clearly out of my hands and they're clearly, you know, only in the hands of the people in the dugout. Yeah. Sam. And I think that speaks to kind of team, and, you know, the players, it, it made the players comfortable. The, the players had a belief in it. Uh, and, the, and, and, you know, you sometimes when a team takes off and things are just working, you know, j- you just – you don't disrupt it. You keep it going. And I think there was a little bit of that where everybody felt a little more comfortable. Everybody believed in him. And it just created a, a good synergy within the lineup. Yeah, sure did. You guys, um, like one of the things – one of the many things that I've always, like, loved about baseball – I guess not always, but over the last 20 years, 10 years or whatever, is is how, Gene, people like you work with DMAC, people like you. And and I'm wondering, Gene, is there anything that you've learned from him that has changed the way you see things? And DMAC, same thing with you. Is there anything that you've learned from, you know, people that have been in this game and, and scouted and seen it that way that that makes you look at numbers or players any differently? Oh, no, without question. I mean, if you're not waking up every day and trying to learn and grow – as an employee and, and, and not having that sense of, I mean, for me, it's, it's almost a little sense of insecurity and in that I've got to keep going. I've got, I've got to keep growing. And I broke into the game with an analytical boss and Eddie Epstein in 1997, San Diego. But, but as this thing has evolved and even some of the exercises we've had over the last three weeks have been, you know, very educational for myself, for my staff. And I think you have to constantly continue to want to grow and learn about information and learn about data and technology. And so that that's one of the really, really unique things about, you know, our organization and our departments is that there's, there's great synergy. We all believe in each other. We all have great respect for each other. There's absolutely no ego. And we just continue to try to learn and grow with each other every day. Right. I, so obviously when I joined in 2013, I had come from finishing my PhD. It was, it was a, Pretty, pretty, pretty cool journey for me 
and it took a lot of it took a lot of effort. And this has been sort of a an equivalent kind of journey from that perspective because I've had to learn from a lot of different people and I've had to learn how to listen to a lot of different opinions and to understand how to communicate my opinion as clearly as possible um, while taking into account a lot of information and a lot of wisdom in this game. And when you understand and talk with, you know, everyone on Gene's staff, everyone in our amateur scouting department, you learn so much more about the game from little details that you, you can, you know, miss as a casual fan and not miss a single thing enjoying the game. Um, but when it comes down to making clear decisions, understanding all of those aspects that go into making good player decisions is, is, is staggering. And, you know, the, the, like I said, being able to, to hear that wisdom, hear the process that a lot of these guys have gone through in terms of their playing days to their scouting days and the process that they go through while, when they scout, uh, you know, is, you know, something that I, I, I couldn't find in a book or I couldn't learn just by, you know, picking, picking names out of a, you know, off of a website. It requires those conversations. It requires uh, those disagreements, but those disagreements that happen in a good place where everyone's bringing, you know, good intentions to the, to the, to the debate. Yeah. I'm curious about this with you, DMAC, like maybe not necessarily the way that you look at numbers and, and do your analysis, but when you're just as a fan, like watching a baseball game, is, is there any like specific way that you see the game differently now? Um, having had all these conversations with, with people like Gene and, and everybody on his staff? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Can you give me an example? Yeah, I, I, I'd say let's, pitchers is a good place to start. Starting pitchers. Uh, starting with all of the time that I've gotten to spend with Lonnie Goldberg and Danny Onaveros in the draft and Paul Gibson, you know, who now oversees our pitching in the player development sphere, and listening to them talk about deliveries, good deliveries, good arm actions, you know, physical starters, and then watching those types of players that get picked and how they develop in the, you know, in, in, in through, through minor league systems and then seeing them pitch in Kauffman stadium, being able to, you know, sit behind home plate and watch why those deliveries work, why those arm actions are important, why that the physical starter is an important, is an important thing to look for. And then being able to bring in a lot of the information that, I've been fortunate to, to get to experiment and, and develop and, and, and interact with kind of brings you to that point where you understand just how special it is to, to be a, a, an everyday starter in Major League Baseball. But it all starts with the good mechanics and listening to these guys who have a ton of experience watching for those sorts of things and explaining them clearly to someone like myself. Yeah, that's cool. And, and Gene, anything that... Um I don't know if you watch the game differently, but anything you've learned from, you know, people like DMAC that you take in your evaluations at all? Well, definitely on the shifting, definitely on the hard hit, the chase, the swing and miss, yeah. things like that, where, where I was more of a pure, uh, with my eyes, evaluate the swing. Um, now it's become more of, of taking the information that he has and trying to apply it and just see if there's something that's there that can be corrected that can make him better. Uh, something in the swing, uh, you know, do they have the vision to recognize spin? Do they have the balance? Uh, so, so the information that he has has turned into more of, of the, the, the indicators for me when evaluating hitters for sure. 
Okay. Um, Dayton, I'm curious about this too. Like when, you know, DMX just mentioned a couple of times, like been here since 2013 and that's seven years, but in my mind, I'm like, Oh, he's one of the new guys, you know, in, in your front office, you guys for the most part have been together for so long. Um, I, I guess I'm curious, like wh- where, where do you see that um, as, as, you know, a benefit and are there any things that you do to make sure that it doesn't go the other way? You know what I mean? That it doesn't become, you know, sort of you get in a rut and, and you don't do anything. Yeah. Well, I think Gene and <clears throat> hit it on the head. I mean, you, you want to always have a, you know, a growth mindset. You're always trying to learn. And, and that's one of the reasons I think we stay in this game as long as we do is because it continues to stimulate us. And uh, we want diversity of thought. Diversity of thought is what stimulates us. Right. And so uh, we, we love to have baseball conversations. And, you know, I go back to the the same thing all the time is you and I have had a lot of leadership discussions. I study leaders. I, I, I'm trying to grow as a leader every single day. Dr. King said, and one of my favorite quotes ever is, if you want to be understood, you must understand somebody else. And so when you when you talk about Gene Watson and, and, and Danny Mack, I mean, you talk about two exceptional human beings that want to learn from each other. They have deep respect for one another. They're leading departments. And the fact that they are leading their departments and modeling that type of behavior, their staffs begin to model that type of behavior. So we have a group of, of, of individuals, and we've said this from the very beginning. Look, these old dogs in our organization, they can learn new tricks, okay? So let's teach them. Let's, let's help grow them, right? And so, and then the young people that come into the game and more of an analytical bent, those guys I find, if we engage them, they want to learn deeply about, they want to hear the stories on the road and, and being at the ballpark and scouting experiences and so forth. I mean, they love that aspect of the game. They want to hear the stories of, of how scouts discovered players and, and why they, what their processes are. I mean, they're intrigued by it, right? And so they're very, they're very curious intellectually. And so the reason these departments work and they thrive together and the reason I believe our, our front office is so well positioned going forward is because of the leadership of, of guys like Dr. Mack and, and Gene Watson and, and, and others as well. I mean, I can't say enough of what J.J. Piccolo has done from a developmental standpoint over the last three to four years and what Alex Zumwalt's doing and, and Paul Gibson and and Austin Driggers in performance science, what Ryan Maid has done in behavioral science and, and what we continue to do on the leadership development end of it. But again, the only way it works is we have honest, upfront discussions where nobody cares about who's getting the credit and we're just trying to get the players right. And, and as we all know and we all understand and we don't make excuses for our market, we take what we have and we make the best of it. We don't, we don't make excuses for what we don't have. We take what we have and we utilize it to the best of our ability. But as you know, Sam, a lot of these decisions, they come down to the financial part of it as much as anything else. And so, you know, when we look at these teams and we go through these processes and you look at these players, um, I mean, it's, uh, it's, it's, uh, it's a process. We utilize the traditional scouting judgment along with the analytical judgment. The one thing that I argue and, and DMAC can, can, talk to this. I mean, cause I'll say DMAC, like, I don't, I don't want you to necessarily um, take into account what our scouts say. I want just your opinion on the true raw numbers. And I'll say the same thing to Gene at times, Gene, just don't worry about the numbers. Just give me what you think. But what I've learned is I've made those statements early on in my leadership. I've learned that 
that's not the best way to necessarily come to a conclusion. And DMAC, why don't you talk a little bit about that? So, you know, I think we've, you know, especially in, in places like the draft, you know, we have some varying different uh, opinions that come from strict performance data, scouting data, and that's really where you get into a ton of projection, right? You have a ton of, you've got 18 year olds, you've got potentially college age kids who have room to grow, who have room to get better. And the, but the performance data may not directly line up with some of that information. And, uh, you know, I think when you separate those two out, you can still end up with some really, with a lot of good information to help make a decision. But what ends up happening over time is when you see those two things converge, if they've at least acknowledged each other before that knowledge, before that those two pieces of knowledge converge, you end up with better decision making because you the, the 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 little sharp jagged edges that each side may have as it relates to individual players, you can kind of smooth those a little bit, and you worry less about those guys and more about the places where, given a little bit more defensive knowledge from the scouting side, some of our performance data really does highlight a different player. And once we kind of look at that from that perspective, it's a lot easier for us to find the players that truly match the profile we want to have in our system that we want playing in Kauffman Stadium. So, you know, we're prepared to think about it just from a performance data, performance uh, data perspective, but there's, there, there's a, there's kind of another layer just slightly on top of that, that if you incorporate it in really you know, makes everything blossom even better from an analytical standpoint. That's interesting because, I mean, in in a lot of ways, but including, you know, Gene kind of toward the beginning of this discussion was talking about, you know, Kauffman Stadium and how that's different. I think we all know that inherently, right? Like you guys have always, you know, targeted speed and and stuff like that. But it's it's just interesting to hear you say kind of the same thing on on your side, that you look for different numbers, you look for different, you know, you're, you're scouting you're doing your job differently than you would if you worked for what, like the, the Red Sox, right. With, with that ballpark. It's, uh, it's just really. Sam, if I could add on to that, I, I would say to you that, you know, from our evaluation standpoint, sometimes the numbers don't add up and we've got to find the why we've got to right. find the, the reason why this guy is attractive to our organization. A guy I'll bring up is Jeremy Guthrie. When we acquired Jeremy Guthrie, you know, here's a guy that's in Coors Field in Colorado and not having the greatest of years. And and we felt like, you know what, let's get him out of Coors Field. Let's bring him to Kauffman Stadium, bigger ballpark, fly ball pitcher, and and maybe he can, you know, relax and return to himself. And that that's exactly what he did. And there, there's a lot of cases because oftentimes we're looking for the buy low guy and the numbers don't add up. Well, we've got to get into the why the numbers don't add up and why we believe that we can fix this player and make him a competitive championship player for the Kansas city Royals. Yeah. Yeah. That's that, Guthrie's a great example, man. He's <laughs> those numbers when, when you brought him in were, were pretty horrific, but um, he, he had some good seasons for him. And, and, you know, that was a situation you go back to the financial part of it. We were already over budget that year. And I remember, I remember like it was yesterday having the conversation with Mr. Glass. I said, Mr. Glass, we want to make this deal. And this is why we want to make this deal. And I had all the, the, the analytical data, all the scouting judgment, everything that, that Gene and, and, and DMAC uh, present. And then there was a financial piece and it was going to cost us a million dollars more. And at the time, 
we didn't want to add any money. And Mr. Glass said, well, if you think he can be a part of the future, do it. But, you know, I'm not seeing it. And um, we did it based on, you know, the judgment of, of, of our people. And, and um, you know, we felt and we felt good about Jeremy Guthrie's makeup. Right. If there's one guy that could figure it out based on all of our experiences and everything we knew about him, um, he's smart. He'd had some failure. He's motivated to get back. He's going to try to figure out why. So we trusted that. How do you guys scout the, you know, because like DMAC can look at the, the numbers. Gene can watch watch him play. But how do you guys evaluate that sort of personality part of it? You know, like sometimes you get lucky and you have a, a coach that had the, you know, had the guy for a season or two. Yeah. But, you know, with, with Guthrie, how, how did you how did you do that? Well, I mean, it's that, that's a great question. That's the toughest thing for us all to figure out, and I think we would all acknowledge that. You know, we, we get a lot of credit for some of the moves we made in the offseason of 14 leading into 15, and people talk about that. But what's not talked enough about that was the environment that was already in the clubhouse with our players, uh, with Ned and the coaching staff, with the expectations to win, the excitement of our fans – and so I, I believe that it was – we, we had the percentages on our side to whoever we brought in that they would reach their ceiling and do well because the environment was really good, right? So we get a lot of credit for as a, as a front office, really too much credit for hitting on all those guys. Eh, I think our processes were good, but it was everything combined together. And it was as much as the environment as anything else. And those players were extremely locked in, extremely focused – they knew we had a chance to win, and uh, they were going to do all the right things to push through because they could taste it. They could taste that winning was on the horizon, and they weren't going to do anything to jeopardize that vision, and they were going to be extremely focused. And so we trusted that about Jay Guthrie. We really did. I mean, Jeremy, we, we knew about his, his background. Uh, he'd had – you know, Jeremy Guthrie had been through failure before, Sam. I mean, he was a first-round pick, as you know. He was taken off the roster, I think, by the Indians, if I'm correct, DMAC and, 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 and Gene. And he went through waivers, and, you know, he was a failed number one pick, right, coming out of college. And so he had already been through struggles before, and we watched him rise above it, had a lot of success in Baltimore. And then, obviously, he had failed, going through failure again. And But we felt as long as he was healthy, he would get back to some level that would help our team and be one of five in a rotation. Yeah, that's interesting. That the, that failure thing, um, Dayton. You talk about that a lot. And I, I remember actually when you guys drafted Moose, um, th- that was like a question, right? Like the kid had never failed, and what, what's going to happen when when he sees some struggles? And I think we saw that play out as well. Sam, Sam piling onto that too, but and, and you brought up Moose, which is a great point. You know, when you're talking about team and the tangibles and and bringing in the makeup, that's so important to your culture. When you look at that 14 team. Um, and you brought in we brought in Raul Abanez and 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 Jason Nix and Jason Frazier and Josh Willingham and Scott Downs. And when we brought in those guys, I mean, they were all kind of veteran players trending towards the end of their career, but they were such a driving force in, in making our young players believe that they could win and, and showing them how to win and showing them how to work and making them understand that they could achieve more. And that's an interesting part because during that time. There were, there were day-to-day situations where we had opportunities to acquire maybe a more talented player, but it would have been so much so damaging to our culture and where our major league team was at that time. And it just 
it plays so much into how important having those leaders on your major league team and being able to lift up the other young players is, even when the ability level may be sliding a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. Um, look guys, um, <laughs> this is, this has been great. I'm, I'm trying to respect your time and everything here. Uh, but I, I really appreciate you guys getting together and, and talking about all this. Is, is there anything that I haven't asked or anything that hadn't come up that, uh, you know, any, any points that you want, want to make? Any thoughts, DMAC? No, I we nailed yeah, it. <laughs> yeah, I guess I, you know, I, I was going to say, I think there were some, some picks on those two teams that were, that were pretty interesting. Um, you know, I was going to ask why, uh, for example, you uh, had Soler as your DH, not as your right fielder, and then grow grab Kendris Morales. You seem kind of like an odd man out in that group, but if yeah. I'm going to ask a critical question, I guess. <laughs> I didn't know if there was rules I wasn't aware of. See what I go through, Sam? Get in the mix, Sam. What's that? Yeah, see what I go through? Now you're <laughs> on the other end of that. Let's go. I want to see how you get out of this one. Exactly. Um, <laughs> I, I just I, – I feel like uh, Frank Core is a better right fielder than Soler. I was trying to, I was trying to prioritize, prioritize defense there. Okay. Sam, I think the most interesting debate, the most subjective one, was the uh, the Wade Davis in 14 versus 15 because Wader had such a dominated season in 14, didn't give up a home run. I think he gave up one extra base hit from May 1st through the World Series, and it was the double in San Francisco. And But then you measure that season as a setup guy that pulled devolved him into being an all-star in 15 – but then you got to measure that whole season of 14 versus 15 where getting those last three outs is such uh-huh. a different dynamic. And so that, to me, was in going through all of them was, was the most interesting as far as comparing and, and coming up with a decision. You know what's funny about that with Wade is um, that was Ryan's pick. Um, and I think – sorry, my dog's barking. But I, th- I think he originally picked Wade Davis of 15 and in my head, I'm like, that's fine. Like, I'll just take the other way, Davis. Like, it was just, you know, different levels of, of ridiculous production there. But then he later on changed it to 14. Uh, and I'm like, that's fine. I'll take 15. <laughs> like, flip a coin. You just never know when you've got to get those last three outs of a game, what it's going to do. Yeah. And obviously, he, he met the challenge. Yeah, he sure did. Where was Greg Holland in all of this? Yeah. Uh, well, I mean, just I think we both would love to have, you know, the uh, – what was it? It would have been 14 version of Holland, right? 13, uh, I think, is the one I would have picked. But the 13, okay. Um, 14 is also a very good one. Yeah, but just Wade, man, that guy, he was different. He was different. Would, would you have taken yeah, Holland in 13 win. over either of those great uh, Wade Davis? Uh, I might have taken I, I might have taken 13 Holland over 15 Davis um, yeah. from a – from the perspective that Holland was a, just a pure strikeout machine in 13 and mm-hmm. also could pitch and leverage. So I, I feel like that's a guy who could really trust had he been healthy in 15, you know, no, you know, that could have been an even more dominant bullpen. We could have stopped pitching at starters after the fifth with no concerns almost. Right. Well, where's Joaquin Sori in all this? <laughs> hey, he's right underneath all of those Hollands. I, I, I mean, I, I, he, he's all the there's there's some there's some pretty good Soria years in there as well too. Yeah, I like those guys. I like those guys that are boom. It's over. It's efficient. You know, when Soria was in his prime, 
I mean, he he knocked through those guys really, really quick. The ninth inning went fast with Joaquin Sawyer. That was he was in his prime. Yeah, he was pretty yeah. cool. Yeah. The one thing about all those guys, they're just so they're they're cool under pressure. You know, mm-hmm. whether it be Holly Davis, it's almost you know when when things would get a little tight. Sorry in his prime, those guys we mentioned, I mean, they would calm down even more and make better pitches. Well, I remember that it sticks out, you know, they've got all these replays on, on Fox Kansas City going in that game six against Toronto when uh-huh. Wade pitches on both sides of the rain delay. And uh, was, was it was it first and third with no outs, I think, right? And second and third with, uh, with one out. Um, and he mowed them down. I'll just – I'll never forget this. Um, but down in the clubhouse after – uh, David Glass was down there and he sought out Wade and he said, I was nervous until I figured out you weren't. Yeah, that's so true because, you know, I remember you sharing that and, and Mr. Glass, had, I'd heard him say that. And I was actually sitting in the training room with Waiter after the game and my pulse was still racing at an all-time high and he was right. as cool as a cucumber. I mean, yeah. he was so unfazed emotionally. Uh, they're downstairs, buddy. Get Sammy in here. Let's see what saying. You want to say hi? What's Sammy. going on, kid? They're downstairs. They're downstairs. Where are they downstairs? Oh, give me a second. Okay, buddy. Uh, <laughs> all right, sorry, guys. You want to say hi? Here we go. What's all going right. on? Okay, I'll find him. All right. Um, well, guys, I again, um, go downstairs with mommy. Um, sorry, work, work from home stuff, right? All right. Um, well, look, guys, I, this has been, um, like my favorite interview that, that I've had in a while. I just, I love, um, and I think you guys know this about me, just like the, the, the different sort of areas of baseball that, that Gene represents and DMAG and how those things work together. And it's just, um, that's always been a fascinating thing to me. Yeah. Well said. Well said. So... Uh, what else you guys got today? And by the way, I, I, I can't wait for actual – we're talking about evaluating players. I can't wait for you to be able to evaluate players again, right? Yeah. Well, the draft obviously is the forefront right now. Yeah. More with everything we're trying to figure out. and It's going to be interesting. What I don't fully get the five rounds thing. You know, Sam, um, I think we're all really disappointed. I mean, we, we, we really hurt for the players. I mean, if you – as you know, if you, you understand what baseball means to a baseball player, yeah. I mean, certainly we know what it means to our fans and and a lot of us that work in the game, but to the players that are actually – it's their dream and, and they've sacrificed greatly to, to, to play this game. Uh, you know, we really hurt for the limited opportunities, but we also understand the economics of the game. And as I've said before, it's not our money. I mean, it belongs to the owners and, and uh, it's our job to make it work within the rules. And, and right now we're faced with five rounds and we have six picks and, you know, uh, Lonnie and his staff and DMAC and his staff are, are working tirelessly to make sure we, we line them up properly based on the evaluations we have, which it's incomplete evaluations, I would think, at this time. Right, DMAC? I mean, sure. it's not as complete as it was, but we can't make excuses, right? Absolutely. No, that's, there's people are working in uncertainty, and, and the, the draft is a no, no greater place to see that right now. 
because, you know, scouts only got, you know, very limited looks at an, at a number of the, the top guys. And I would have loved to have gotten a full year of data on, on a lot of these players as well. But, um, you know, I think the infrastructure that's been built here, uh, both scouting wise and from a lot of the, the modeling techniques that we use, I think gives us a, an opportunity to work in that uncertainty. Um, all right, guys. Um, all right, Sam. Thanks for having us. Appreciate yeah. it. Thank you, guys. This has been yeah. really cool for me. I appreciate it. Thank you. All right, boys. See you later. Here. Okay, guys. Dayton, big thanks again to him for playing along with us and also for going the extra mile and getting all these other people to uh, to put their input on it. That, that was more than I expected and, and also very fun. Biggest thanks to you guys for listening. Really appreciate you giving us a chance and hope we're worth it. Huge thanks to Savannah Smith for putting this all together. This show literally would not exist without her. So anyway, have a good weekend, guys, and we will talk to you next week.